Good morning. You've probably already figured out that I'm not Pastor Zach. He's not here, okay? But I want to welcome you anyway. Everybody that's here in the room or in the building with us today and those joining online, welcome. I'm, I'm really glad you're here. So, I mean, Pastor Zach's out of town, so not only did they give me the microphone to do offering, he asked me to preach. Yeah. Hang on. Hmm. So the lead pastor's out of town and the rookie gets in that bat, right? So those of you that don't know me, I am Pastor Michael, Michael Ivey actually. My wife Shanna and I serve as the discipleship pastors here at Connection Point Church and we love you guys. They just don't put me in front real often and that's okay by me. So we're going to dive in. We got a lot to cover today. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never be let out until you have paid the last penny. These are the very words of God. You can be seated. So those of you that uh, read those verses either on your glowing Bibles or your analog Bibles may have noticed two things. Okay. Oh, where's it at? It wasn't on the slide. That's Matthew 5 verses 21 through 26. And by the way, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I will say this, Pastor Zach asked me to preach and got a yes before he gave me these scriptures, okay? So, if you read this in your analog Bible or your glowing Bible, you'd probably notice two things. The first thing is, these letters are red, okay? So, those of you that are new to the Bible, the Word of God, if the letters are red in the New Testament, that means those are words spoken, 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 talked by. Jesus, he directly said those words so that we know when they're read in the New Testament, hey, Jesus said this. Secondly, you might have noticed the heading above verse 21. It said anger. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about Jesus and anger today. My first sermon and Zach's like, here you go. Hey, there ain't no softballs around here, folks. Jesus and anger. So I'll tell you what, we're going to dive in and we're going to do the best we can today. But before we do that, I really just want to talk openly to you. Uh, Some of you guys have known me for a really long time. Like if you've known me the last 10 years or more, I hope that you can see the work that God's done in my life. There's a lot of people. I mean, my mom, my dad, my wife, my kids, they're all in this room. And if you have a memory of me not displaying Christ's character in anger, please come to me. Please come to me so that I might seek your forgiveness and reconcile with you. Please don't let that disqualify me in your heart today. Oh, well, yeah, I know who he really is. Please stick with me and hear what God has to say. Because I know me and I know the work that God's done in my life, I do not, absolutely do not stand here on my own authority. Yes, I have a card in my wallet that says I am a licensed minister for the assemblies of God. Doesn't mean a hill of beans. Instead, I'm going to be talking through my knowledge of truth, through the experience and the testimony that I have of God's transformational work in my life in anger and the authority of God's word. We're going to dive into God's word. Last, before we dive in, I really want to say this. This ain't going to be a self-help, feel better, be the best version of you kind of message. 
It just ain't. Because if that's all you walk away with, I have failed you. And I've failed you miserably. I mean, that's the reality. No, we're going to wrestle with God's word. Because it's through that that we find transformation in our hearts and lives. And that's what I want for you, for me today. So that we walk away different. We walk away closer and with a better knowledge of God. So, I hope you don't expect to leave feeling great. Now, I tell you what, I mean, seriously, like, I mean, Zach's like, hey, I want you to preach August 8th. Can you do that? Are you willing and able? Yeah, I'm willing and able. Here's your scriptures. And then I'm like, oh, man. And I'll, I'll tell you, have you ever been reading through your Bible and, and, and the Holy Spirit just says, hey, <clears throat> hey, about this, I want to work in this in your life. And you're like, oh. And then you have lots of opportunity to work on that in your life. <laughs> yeah, this is about four weeks ago that Zach texted me. And I'll tell you what, the last four weeks have been a gem. <laughs> I've got tons and tons of practice. Whew. So let's, uh, let's get back to our scripture. So this passage is in Matthew, Matthew 5, in case you missed it. Um, and it's a small portion of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm not going to tell you all of this because I want you to think, oh my gosh, he knows so much about the Bible and he's smart. I want you to be able to wrestle with the scripture on your own. And when we interface with scripture, we've got to understand the historical and cultural context around it so that we can get it, what it means. So this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is, is preaching, it, it comes after he's been teaching city to city, healing the sick, casting out demons from multitudes, and so folks started following him, okay? The word is crowds, crowds of people began to follow him, so Jesus, as he's walking with his disciples, has this horde of people following him, and as he climbs up the side of the mountain, he turned around, and he saw the crowds, so he sat down. And he started to teach. Now, I'll tell you what, there's a bunch of red letters here, okay? Carl Medeiros, in his book, 42 Seconds, went through all the red letter exchanges in the New Testament. He spoke them out loud. He timed them. He figured out, on average, they're 42 seconds long. Good book about having conversations like Jesus did. But this ain't 42 seconds. We're talking two chapters of Matthew, okay? Five through seven in the New Testament book of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus covers a ton of ground in these two chapters. It's also important to remember that who he's speaking to would either have been Jewish or understood the Jewish context of the law. You know, they certainly would have known scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law and everything that went with it, okay? Now, this portion of the Sermon on the Mount falls into what's called a set of antitheses, all right? Basically, when I'm taking two opposites and I'm comparing and contrasting against them. Let me give you an example. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. That's an antithesis, okay? Except here, in these antitheses, Jesus is contrasting what the original biblical audience, those folks that heard it that day, had been taught all of their life about you know, the New Testament, or excuse me, the, the Ten Commandments and, and the law. He, he's comparing that against the true nature of God. So he's using these teachings, these antitheses, to compare what they've heard and what they've seen lived out against himself. Make sense? Okay, so we've got Jesus teaching large crowds of people who were Jewish or understood the Jewish context and worldview here in the Sermon on the Mount. If we start from the very beginning, we look at his sermon. First, he declares there's good news in the Beatitudes. Then he explained to them what disciples or his followers should look like, you know, be salt and life of the earth. He then affirms his loyalty to God and the law and declares that he's there to fulfill all of the law. And then finally, he gives a warning about his followers' righteousness. And then he gets really radical. In verse 21 and 22, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. <laughs> That's harsh. 
I'm guessing the folks that heard that that day may have been caught off guard. I mean, I'm good with not murdering somebody, right? That makes sense, but now you're telling me if I'm angry, I'm liable to the same judgment? If I curse them, I'm in danger of the hell of fire? I mean, this is radical stuff. I mean, we walked in these laws for how long, Jesus, and now you're telling me if I'm just mad? <sighs> but Jesus said what he said, and he meant it. He really did. And what he said still applies to our lives today. Not all of Jesus' teachings are easy to understand or apply to our life. Simply put, they take heart change. They take transformation. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that changes or renews our hearts and minds. Now, it'd be really easy to think that after reading this passage that anger in and of itself is a sin. But it's not. How do I know that? How can I be confident in that statement? Because Jesus got angry, but he was without sin. Now, I'm going to talk about our anger later, but I'll say right now that the question, sin or not, depends very much why we're angry and how we act on it. Anger by itself is just an emotion. It's one of the most raw and difficult emotions that we deal with. But emotions are found in the person of God the person of Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, and they are without sin. What might be standing in our way, honestly, is a true understanding of the nature of God and his desire for us. See, everybody standing in this room, sitting in this room, I guess I'm the only one standing right now. Everybody in this room or watching online probably falls in between two polar opposites. The first on one side is that, man... Jesus is this loving and cuddly 60s hippie where everything's okay, nothing ever flaps him, he's never mad. So much to the point that you can't ever imagine him being upset or angry or mad. It just messes with your head. The other opposite is that, oh, man, God is so angry, he's looking around the corner and he's waiting to whack me when I do something wrong. I saw a sticker on Facebook Marketplace the other day. It was like Jesus, and you put it like by a light switch, you know, and he's leaning out, and it says, I saw that. I laughed, and I thought, that's horrible theology. Neither one of those depictions of our God, of our loving Father, of Jesus, our Savior, are right. My mama told me that there's always two sides to a story, and the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Now, let me say up front where I stand. I want you guys to know Jesus is nice and he's loving. He said things like this. Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. And he said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. That sounds nice, right? Sounds gentle. But what about this? You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? <laughs> I'm pretty sure somebody tweeted today, tweeted that out today. That would be pretty inflammatory. Am I right? But it was Jesus. I mean, come on. Though he is loving and tender, his words were sometimes sharp and biting. Many of the things Jesus said are either a direct condemnation of someone's attitude or behavior or a story told to elicit that effect. So, I guess we've got to ask, what makes Jesus angry? I'll tell you, that's a great question. Because we can often learn more about somebody, about learning what they don't like, than what they do like. Okay? I'll give you an example. I do not like mayonnaise and pickles. I don't. They're disgusting. I will go on record today. It is going to be live streamed and captured. The whole world's going to know I don't like mayo and pickles. My kids are smiling because they know I don't like mayo and pickles. They may have witnessed me go and drop a pickle out of my mouth. True story. <laughs> but with that knowledge, right now you guys know an entire classification of foods, something salad, forget it that I won't defile my body with, right? So we can know more about somebody by figuring out what they don't like. 
So we can, figure, we can ask the question, what made Jesus mad? I'm going to jump into three examples that I, I just want to walk through. The first is from John 2, 13 through 17. Everybody knows this story. Take a guess what it is. That was great, guys. <laughs> okay, think of Pastor Zach flipping tables. What story is it? Yeah, Jesus in the temple. I'm sorry, the last time somebody made a whip and walked through an area telling people to leave and flipped over their tables, I wasn't guessing they were happy. So it is, it is. It's in the temple where the money changers were literally denying access to the Father, especially for the non-Jews and the poors. Let's talk about this story a little bit. Again, not because I'm smart, but I want you to understand. This wasn't a snap decision. Jesus didn't just walk up and go, this makes me mad. I'm going to make a whip and flip it over. He'd been there already. He was already in the area. Okay? He had been at the temple, been teaching, and he'd seen what was going on. Now, the way the temple is laid out is courtyard with a courtyard and another courtyard and another courtyard and then the inner sanctuary and then the Holy of Holies, okay? That farthest outside courtyard where the money changers were set up was as far as the non-Jews could go. God himself dwelt in the Holy of Holies, but that was as close as they could go, all right? Now, not only were they there, I mean, have you ever tried to worship Jesus in a really, really busy, loud place? Let's say, how about you go have your abiding time with Jesus in O'Hare, Terminal 5? It's not going to work really well. So this commotion is going on. Not only that, but those, those, we have historical evidence that would show us that those money changers and those selling animals for sacrifices were not doing so fairly. They were praying against the poor. And I'll talk a little bit more and give a little more context about that. But literally, they were blocking access for people to experience God's love. The second one, Matthew 19, 13 through 14. It's uh, Jesus is teaching, crowded room. It's busy. Moms and dads have seen what Jesus has been doing. They want to bring their kids to him and have him blessed. What did his disciples do? Why, absolutely, that's a great idea. Come on over. No, they rebuked them. Last time I got rebuked, it didn't feel good. It's not a nice thing. What did Jesus say? Let them come to me. In another instance, he's teaching and he asked for a child to be brought up. He's in the, the house of the mother-in-law of Peter, one of his disciples. And it may have actually been one of Peter's kids. We don't know. But he said, bring me a child. And he, he taught about the faithfulness of a child. That if we didn't act like these children, God loves children. And here's the, here's the disciples saying, no, shame on you. Don't interrupt the good teacher. Take your child and go away. Culture was different then. Kids weren't valued. Jesus was being radical and said, bring them to me. He was angry because the disciples were blocking access to these children enjoying God's love. And I'll tell you, he's serious about this. Because when he was teaching near Peter's mother-in-law's house, you know what he said? He said that if you cause one of these to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone tie it around your neck, and to be cast into the sea. That doesn't sound like a happy little if-then statement. It is not an idle threat. It made Jesus angry. The last example. This one gets my goat. Matthew 12, 9 through 14. Oh. The Pharisees are gathered around on the Sabbath day, and they're watching Jesus, seeing if they can catch him. See if they can catch him doing something wrong, breaking their rules that they added on top of the law. And there's a guy with a withered hand. It doesn't work. And Jesus knows their thoughts, right? And he asks them, what's more important? Relationship and suffering and rules and law or my love? Now, he healed the man, but the Pharisees plotted to kill him. And if you read through that story, Jesus is not happy. In every scriptural instance, when we see Jesus expressing anger, you know, that rawest of all emotions, here's the match that lit his fuse. I want you to hang on to this today. People getting in the way of God's love. 
Think about it this way. Jesus came to provide his people with direct access to the Father as demonstrated by the veil in the temple being torn during the crucifixion. You'll find that in Matthew 27, 51. See, this is an enormously symbolic and significant part of the crucifixion that most people just read past. We're not talking a little scrim that hangs in front of your window for privacy. We're talking a huge, huge, thick piece of woven fabric torn from top to bottom. And it cut off the world from what was behind it. And behind that veil was what the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt. Only the high priest could go in there and once a year at that, okay? This was a huge deal. In fact, when they went in, they tied a rope with a bell on it around his leg, okay? Just in case he croaked when he came in contact with God. So if the bell stopped ringing, they started pulling to drag out his corpse. Could you imagine? You get in front of God and you just stand still in awe. And the bell stopped ringing and all of a sudden, oh no. So you got to remember, tap your foot. God, I'm not in patience. I just don't want him to drag me out of here. No one else was ever allowed in. I'm serious. God set it up that way because although he wanted his people to know how badly he wanted a, a, a strong personal relationship with them, a direct relationship, there was just too deep a divide their sin, between their sinfulness and his holiness. But he was preparing them for a savior. So at the crucifixion, that veil that separated anything was torn from top to bottom. This was God's way of showing us that Jesus' mission was complete. We can see it right here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Say it with me. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. That was Jesus' mission. Everything Jesus came to accomplish had to do with reuniting the Father with his children. So if access to the Father was Jesus' purpose on earth, then it logically follows that it angered Jesus when people created barriers to that access. Now, there are a whole lot of times when Jesus' anger seems to be coming out in his language. <laughs> I mean, it is really hard to call someone a child of hell with a smile on your face. Please don't try that right now, okay? But did you notice at whom his anger was directed to in these examples? It was the religious people of, on earth in his days. Well, mostly the religious leaders. So that would be me today, right? Yeah, he was mad at the people who supposedly spoke for God. He was angry because they were blocking the lesser people, the little people from him, the non-Jews, women, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. And I'll tell you, I could spend hours talking about how people stand in God's way just based on the examples that we see in Scripture and Jesus expressing his anger. But I don't have that kind of time. I really don't. So I'm sure it's not going to surprise you. I have a book recommendation. Okay? If you want to dive deeper into this conversation and really see what makes Jesus angry or what made Jesus mad, there's a book with that title. Uh, Dr. Tim uh, Harlow, I was going to say him low, it's Harlow, has a book called What Made Jesus Mad. It is an easy read, and I'm sure it would challenge you as much as it did me. But I can't avoid the hard conversations. So rather than just sitting and teaching about that we need to apply it to our lives. Because Jesus' anger, it's not just past tense. It's present tense, too. It's really easy to armchair quarterback with our Bible in our lap, in our quiet time, and read about the Pharisees. You know, they were complaining because he ate meals with obvious sinners, or he broke some of their rules that they added to on top of the law by healing on the Sabbath. It's really, really plain to see that they got it wrong. 
Or how about that rich young ruler who came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) It's easy to see Jesus' frustration because this guy got it wrong. He didn't like the answer. He turned around and walked away from salvation because he was sad because he had selfish ambitions. But we're going to miss the point completely if we don't apply these truths to our lives today and every day. Because it's not what made Jesus mad. It's what makes Jesus angry. What makes him angry are people standing in the way of others or themselves experiencing his love. His love, being in his presence, abiding and allowing the Holy Spirit to work, that's what transforms people. That's what changes hearts and minds. And transform people, bring Jesus and his love into every interaction with them. Therefore, allowing those that they interact with to experience Jesus and his love with a chance for their transformation, rinse and repeat. It is us who are the conduit to bring Jesus into every interaction. You see, transform people, they don't block access to God's love. They bring access to God's love. So what makes Jesus mad? Blocking access to his love. Now it stands to reason that if people standing in in the way of God's love is what makes Jesus angry, well, then we, his followers, being that conduit for others to experience his love, that we could be the ones standing in the way. And one of the fastest ways For us to stand in the way of others experiencing God's love is for us to not display his character in our anger. Oof is right. I heard it. Somebody said it. I'm thinking it. Now, I have to call a spade a spade here. Even if I'm stepping on toes or frankly preaching to myself, if we presume to be a follower of Christ and it does not change the way we think, and act and live our everyday lives, then we're seriously in trouble falling short of what he asked us to do, to be spiritually mature, to make disciples. And as comfortable as it is, uncomfortable as it is, I can't stand to leave us there. We've got to go farther. We've got to go closer to him. So I'm, you may have heard of Pete Scazzaro before an emotionally healthy spirituality before. This is not a commercial for him. This is not a commercial for those classes, but I'll tell you what, he does a really good job of bringing people to an understanding that it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. See, spiritual maturity is displayed by several things. A continually increasing amount of the fruit of the spirit displayed in our thoughts and our actions, as well as fruit from our life. That fruit being Spiritual disciplines becoming a daily habit and the external evidence of making disciples and bringing them into the kingdom. But hear me out. I'm not saying we can never be angry or that anger is a sin. Neither was Jesus in those red letters. But we've got to examine why we're angry and what we do with it. Now, Paul said... In your anger, do not sin, in Ephesians 4.26. Jesus' own brother James said that we should be slow to anger, in James 1.19. He didn't say we should never be angry. Clearly, what we do with our anger can be wrong. Jesus, in our scripture today, spoke against that as well. He said that we can murder with our hateful words, right? Back in 5.22. Hatred, rage, uncontrolled anger, anger, those are all terrible and sinful. These are, wait for it, I made this up, the fruit of the human. Okay? Yeah, I made that up. Okay, some of you laughed. So, we see these plainly listed out just north of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? There, the biblical writer Paul explains that we should walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh so that we don't gratify human fleshly desires. Think back a few weeks ago. Pastor Rainey talked about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. You guys know that? Okay. But here's what Paul says just before the fruit of the Spirit about the fruit of the human. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, hmm, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fruit of the human. But then he continues. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Fits of anger, strife, rivalries, dissensions, enmity, man, those are all listed in the fruit of the humans as disqualifiers from inheriting the kingdom of God. When we display these, we are not only standing in other people's way of experiencing God's love, we're standing in our own way. We should be willing, actually desperate, to have God root those things out of our lives, to be transformed and allow him to replace those with more of him. Now hear me. Those of you on the scale that, that, that may feel still that God is always mad and looking for me to do something wrong, I am not saying if you get angry and you blow up that God's going to say, whoop, disqualified from the kingdom of God. That's not how he works. I am saying that is, that is the tendency that we stay in. If that's how we normally operate in our life, we stand in our own way of experiencing God's love and standing in our own way will keep us from inheriting the kingdom. Get out of your own way and let the Lord do something in your life. I'm not even halfway through and I'm preaching, guys. We have to be transformed. So think back a couple weeks ago when Pastor Rainey compared his previous message on spiritual maturity to discipleship. Remember, he got up here, he's like, cue up the slides from last time, we're just going to replay it. I can preach the same message, right? Spiritual maturity is making disciples, well, it stands to reason that if we cannot become spiritually mature because we remain emotionally immature, then we stand a really bad chance of ever making fruitful disciples. So not only are we standing in our own way because we don't let God work on those things in our life, those tendencies, those fleshly desires, we're standing in the way of others from experiencing God's love. Think about that for a minute. There isn't a godly kind of anger, though, and a godly way to deal with anger. It's one that causes you to want to do something positive about the negative. That's exactly what Jesus did with his anger. That's how he remained sinless in flipping over tables or calling someone a child of hell. And we can be like Jesus in our anger, too. I'm not going to say it's easy. And I am going to say it does take heart change. I know. But he wants that for you today. So what should we do with our anger? How do we positively deal with our anger? I'm glad you asked. Because in our world today, there are a lot of angry people and a lot of reasons to be angry. There really are. Well, I'll tell you what. God gives us a little bit of a roadmap. Now, if you've been around long enough, you've heard us talking about praying and using Scripture as your guide to pray. In fact, if you've taken any of our prayer guides with you, you'll see that they're all based on Scripture. The book of Psalms is a great place to pray. In fact, as you read through the book of Psalms, you'll recognize that a lot of them are the basis for some worship songs that we sing on any given Sunday. You may also note as you read through the book of Psalms that there's a bunch of them that were written by somebody who was clearly angry and potentially angry at God. But I'll tell you what, the roadmap is that those Psalms always turn back to a heart rightfully anchored in God and his truth and worship of him. So I'll tell you what, 
in that roadmap, it proves that God's big enough that he can know and take and hear from us about being angry, why we're angry, what we're angry about. And if we keep our heart rooted in his truth and in worship, God will do something about that situation and likely it's going to be change you. He knows our thoughts anyway. He examined them, so we might as well be honest. We deal rightly with our anger by praying honestly to ourselves, about ourselves through it. Another right step to take is straight from Jesus later in the Sermon on the Mount. There he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's in Matthew 5.44. Now, I'll tell you what, it is hard to hate somebody that you're praying for by name. It's tough. You can't do it. I mean, don't try, but you can't do it. In time, as you pray for those that anger you, I'm telling you, God's going to change your heart in regards to them faster than he's going to change the circumstance. So at first, you might be praying, Lord, my coworker is so mean to everybody. I'm hurt by what they said. It makes work a challenge. Help me survive today. To in time, Lord, I really sense that you love my coworker. I struggle with that. Help me do that. To eventually, Lord, I really see that my coworker needs more of you. I see they're carrying hurt or selfish ambitions or other things. So, Lord, give me a divine appointment to bring your love to them. And if that doesn't happen, Lord, fill me with your fruit of the Spirit so that they can simply experience you by me being present. I'll tell you what. I know that's true because I've done it. And God's done that in my heart repeatedly. Over time, you're going to skip the beginning prayers and just immediately go to, Lord, I see that they need you. Fill me with your fruit. Give me divine appointment. Let them experience you through me. That's a whole lot different than, man, they hurt me. That's a whole lot different than God just radically changing the situation and bringing you to a new job. I'll tell you, when we get to that point, when we start praying for others like that, you're loving them well too, just like Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44. We deal rightly with anger when we love our enemies and pray for them. Now, if you're keeping track, I've spent almost the entire time talking about the first two verses in this passage. And honestly, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring home the last four. It's a big deal. Probably why there's two-thirds of this passage dealing with it, and that is reconciliation. After Jesus tells us that we can murder with our words, he goes on to say, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. See, Jesus desires for us to live in right relationship with others, so much so that he says that reconciling is more important than bringing gifts to the altar. This was radical. Let me step back into that context again. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is under the old, when they were still under the old covenant. Jesus hadn't been the living sacrifice yet. So they had to go to Jerusalem once a year to offer a gift. This wasn't a church on every corner or give online kind of thing. This was a you had to pack up and walk or maybe ride your donkey for days to get there and then deal with those money changers to buy a gift because it's easier to get there and buy a dove than it was to hold a dove the whole way. I mean, this is a big deal. Jesus said, hey, I know you've traveled for like five days, but if you realize that you have something against your brother or brother has something against you, go home first and reconcile. Then come back and give me a gift. 
We know it's important, and, it, and we know that it's important to do it quickly as well, because he says that. Come to terms quickly. Another great example about the quickness of this reconciliation is found in Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's how quick. So when you ever have something between you or there's something between you and anyone, and I'm not just talking brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm talking about neighbors, coworkers, anybody that doesn't know Christ. I don't care another creation of Jesus who is worthy of his gift and salvation. Anybody reconcile and do it quick. Whether that means you need to apologize, humble yourself and apologize and ask for forgiveness or offer forgiveness. You got to do it. Because I'll tell you what, an unreconciled relationship can block access to God's love for generations. Big statement, right? Ever heard of the Hatfields and McCoys? I'm purposely trying not to get into other areas, but you can imagine unreconciled relationships. You can see it. You know it. You may have experienced it. Reconcile and reconcile quickly because we deal rightly with anger when we seek reconciliation and we seek it quickly. That's a lot. You know, and and I'll tell you, I spoke really openly about I know that I've not been perfect in this area. In fact, some of you that have known me for a long time may have either witnessed or heard about me having an outburst in anger. You know, if that's the case, I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed by that because it doesn't reflect Christ. Please forgive me. Come to me afterward and reconcile with me. But I want to say at the same time, God's transformed me. And he's still transforming me. He's not done yet. I'm not perfect. But he has changed me. And he wants that for you too. I know. And I wouldn't be a good disciple maker if I just stood here and said, hey, I know. Disciple makers say, follow me. I know the way. So I'm going to be really transparent with you all. This may not be comfortable. You may not be used to pastors airing some other dirty laundry. But I have to tell you, follow me, I know the way. I don't feel any condemnation in this. Because I can tell you, I know the day when this transformation started in my life. I know it well. See, <sighs> my mom and dad had some trees taken down in their front yard. And uh, they wanted us to come over and cut up the trunks and split it and take it. And so... We agreed to do that. And uh, so I had an agenda and I had a schedule and I was running behind. I was a little perturbed. And so we had agreed to uh, Shanna and the kids, you know, we'd meet at a restaurant and uh, grab lunch before then. And as I was pulling into the restaurant, they were already there. I got cut off by another car. You know, that car got in my way. I had to swerve and. I didn't hit him, but my log splitter hit the curb, and it flipped over and came off the hitch. I got out of the truck. I may have said a few choice words. I flipped the log splitter over by myself. I got it back on the hitch. I parked, and I was hot under the collar. So I went in, and there's Shanna and the kids over to the side. They've got their food, and so I went to the counter to order my food. And the young man behind the counter was clearly not paying attention to me because I had to give him my order, which was, like, really simple, a burger and some drinks, like, three times because there was a fly, and, and I just can't. And, man, I was getting mad. I felt disrespected because he wasn't listening to me. So... Then I got my food. I walked over to the table. And it was wrong. It wasn't what I ordered. 
And I'll tell you what, I turned around and I walked back and I saw the look in my wife's eyes and my kids. And by the time I got to that counter, I unloaded on that young man and that manager. I was so angry and spewing that I couldn't even make a full sentence. I knew it was stupid. But I could see the hurt in that young man and the manager. So I just said, forget it. I don't even care. I don't want food. And I left. My kids saw that. My wife saw that. So I got in the truck and I went over so at least I could do something productive and I didn't even talk to mom and dad. I just pulled in and I got out the chainsaws and I started cutting and I was... And dad came out. <laughs> it was kind of obvious, but he knew that I wasn't okay. He asked me what was going on and I said, man... I'm mad at myself, I'm angry, I'm nearly 40, I can't control my emotions. See guys, I was saved. I was serving in this church. I was discipling other people and here I am. And dad lovingly prayed for me on the spot. And he nudged me to do the same. And I don't know about you, but when you're mad and you're frustrated and somebody says, you need to pray for yourself, it may not be taken nicely. I know, Dad. But pray I did. And I can tell you, God's done a work in my life. He's done a huge work in my life. He's taken a lot of that away. Am I perfect? No. <laughs> Zach asked me to talk about this, and the last three and a half, four weeks have been a gem, let me tell you what, of opportunities Follow me, I know the way. Some of you might be sitting here and you can really connect with my story because you're that guy or that girl that describes you. And if that's the case, well, I'm going to open up the altar. I'm going to challenge you to get out of your seat and come up here and start seeking, Lord, change me. It's not likely going to happen today. It's going to happen over time, just like for me. I don't know. God may just radically remove that for you. But if you don't take the step to get out of your chair and come pray, when are you going to? After the next time you block access to God's love through your anger? Did you disqualify yourself to speak for his kingdom? If that's you, come on. There is no shame. There's never any shame or condemnation for coming forward and saying, I need more of God and less of me. At any point, as we wrap up, if that's you, come pray. If I could have the prayer team come forward, just on the sides. Maybe you're saying, that's not me. I purposely don't get angry because you carry scars and hurt for someone not dealing well, not showing Christ's character in their anger. First, I am sorry that that's the case. It really does truly hurt my heart to see people with those scars. If that's you, I want to tell you, Jesus wants to heal that. He wants to give you wholeness. So please, come seek that wholeness with our prayer team. Last, let's everybody stand. This might be your first Sunday or your first Sunday in a long time in a church ever. And you might be thinking, wow, I want that transformation. I want that change. And maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's everybody bow our heads, close our eyes. Nobody's looking. This is between you and God right now. 
If you are in the room today, if you're online, you can message the moderator. If that's you and you say, I want to start following Jesus and I want the transformation of my life, would you raise your hands? I see that hand. I see those hands. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'll tell you, you know, as musicians start to play and come forward, God wants to do a work. He wants to do a work in your life. He wants to transform you. Please understand that can, we can walk with our emotions and be without sin. But those same fleshly things that crop up out of our humanness can actually block access to other experience, others experiencing God. God wants to do that work for you. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song and then we'll wrap up. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the men and women that are here today. Thank you for you being here today. Lord, I ask that you continue that transformation work that you've started in everyone else. Continue it in me. Let us be more like you. Be glorified in our thoughts and in our actions, in our words, Lord. For those of you, those that raised their hand that said, yeah, I want that, Lord, be with them. Touch them, reassure them. This isn't just some whim, Lord, that you are saying, I want to change you. I love you. I want you. Lord, those needing healing, take those scars, bring shalom, wholeness into their lives. Those that can't grapple with the word father because dad was always angry, show them you're a good father. Show them what a good father's like. Lord, I just thank you. Have your way. In Jesus' name.